Hello and welcome to another series of Sealy Talks, where we discuss issues facing the rule of law and the judiciary in Central and Eastern Europe. My name is Frida Greeley and I'm a Programme Manager with the Sealy Institute, based in Prague. This series is time to coincide and support our new Remote Judging Certificate course and our webinar series. You can access further information on these initiatives on our website at sealyinstitute.org. In this first episode, we talk with Judge Radoslava Kasharilska of the Regional Court in Sofia, Bulgaria. But first, I speak with retired Judge Jeremy Fogel, whose career spans four decades and includes terms as both a state and federal judge in the US. Now, as Executive Director for the Berkeley Judicial Institute, he talks about the added skills and pressures required of judges in virtual court settings. I started by asking him about the impact of COVID-19 on U.S. courts and their response. Well, it's been very interesting. So I'll talk about both the state and the federal systems because they've responded differently. And I'll start with the federal system just because it's it's a simpler answer. Um, The federal courts have much less volume and they're much more formal in, in their traditions. So uh, they, in the past, have done very little uh, of their work uh, virtually. Everything's been in person. Uh, there actually are rules against having cameras in courtrooms. There are restrictions on recording proceedings or same-time transmission of proceedings. And so the pandemic was a real shock to the uh, federal culture. Uh, our Supreme Court uh, had never had any type of uh, real-time recording or transmission of its proceedings ever. And in fact, the justices were unanimously opposed to doing it. And the pandemic forced them to have some form of um, virtual proceeding because that's the only way people could observe what was taking place. There was no public access to the Supreme Court building because of the pandemic. And so they've done uh, audio. Uh, They've not done video, but but they have had, and as we speak, are having virtual uh, proceedings that they did not have before. So that really involved a, a big shift um, in, in the trial courts in the federal system, um, they um, had to figure out how they were going to uh, get their work done uh, when people could not get access to the court buildings and could not participate in, in trials because of the pandemic. And uh, as some of you know, we have a, a jury system in the United States. So in addition to the uh, judges and the court personnel, there are also are members of the public who are coming in to serve as jurors in, in trials, and they had to figure out how to accommodate those people. And it's been slow. Uh, there are uh, federal courts that have had uh, uh, jury trials during the pandemic. It's required uh, adapting a great deal uh, in terms of uh, how facilities are used and so on. Uh, But they have um, uh, done a lot of virtual work in non-trial proceedings. So a lot of pretrial motion proceedings, uh, case management, mediation, uh, other things that don't require a trial where you have uh, juries present. Uh, A lot of that has been done virtually. Uh, There have been more uh, conferences and more uh, hearings in in non-dispositive matters. And uh, it's gone pretty well because the federal courts have resources. They are better funded than the state courts. And so they're able to achieve 
reasonably good quality. So uh, I would say the federal courts have adapted well as long as we're not talking about trials. And I've had a problem in the federal courts uh, getting timely criminal trials. It's been a real challenge. And how is the state court system faring? On the state courts, they have the volume. They have well over 90% of all the judicial business in the country, and they are less well-funded. So in one hand, the state courts were forced to do things virtually much sooner and much more, much higher volume. On the other hand, they haven't quite had the resources. They don't have the, the hardware. They don't have the money they need to make it really a high-quality operation. And I suspect that that's common in most of the world, that, that our state courts really are the best example of uh, how judicial work gets done in the U.S. that's relevant to the courts around the world. And so a lot's been done audio uh, that there's been less uh, use of, of video just because it's more expensive and harder to do. But there have been a lot more audio proceedings. There have been some types of proceedings in state courts that really have been surprisingly, uh, they've been changed in a good way. I mean, we've had some uh, minor matters, or they might involve traffic offenses or things like that, where the defendants are looking at fines rather than any any jail time. And the the those cases actually have been handled better in a virtual platform. People don't have to take a day off of work. They don't have to make, go through the whole uh, process of appearing in a, in a court that may be some distance from where they live or work. Uh, they can do it virtually from their home. And uh, so the no-show rate has gone down. More people have actually participated, uh, more business has, has gotten done uh, at that end of the scale, at the, at the end of the scale where you're talking about relatively minor uh, matters. But in terms of getting some of the more significant matters done, uh, it's been resource intensive and it's required a lot of creativity on the part of, of the courts. In terms of the quality of the process, which I know is a big concern to everyone, I, you know, it's it's not the same. I mean, you're not in the room with people. You don't have the same three-dimensionality that you do in, in, in a live proceeding. But I think in certain respects, it's better than people had feared. You indicated their concerns for the limitations of virtual courts and remote judging. How do you feel that plays out in practice? You know, let's say that the there's a criminal case where there's a, a genuine issue about what happened, you know, where the, where the defendant is contending that that he or she is, is innocent or that, that uh, whatever happened didn't happen in the way that the prosecution is asserting, I think most defendants would want an opportunity to put on their defense in person to be able to have their themselves or their lawyer cross-examine the prosecution's witnesses, to be able to, if they decide to testify, to be able to testify and be with the person who's going to be making a decision about their liberty, you know, to, to do that in a, in, a, in a direct and personal way. And I think, you know, doing it over a, a, a virtual platform, even, even a good virtual platform, I mean, you do lose something. It's, it's not the same. And it's fine if you're making a legal argument or you're, you know, it's the, the, the matter is not that consequential. But if you're talking about life and liberty, I think it's just hard to see how uh, a defendant is going to be comfortable not being present for that if they, if they really have uh, something substantive to say from a, just a procedural fairness standpoint. And that's what we found, that there, there was a uh, really interesting debate in California about whether certain criminal proceedings that were not dispositive, like like uh, bail hearings or, or arraignments and things like that, you know, could be done 
virtually. And the prevailing view was the defendant had a right to be present at those two. But if there's going to be anything decided, anything that affects the outcome of their case, I think most would like to be there. And and that's that's the challenge with criminal cases. It's it's just hard to there, you, you reach a limit with virtual proceedings in criminal cases where you're, you're right up against the issue of procedural fairness. Well, taking that into account, are there further actions a judge can take or skills they can develop to bridge that gap and ensure procedural fairness? I have a personal anecdote, and it goes back way before the pandemic. It was a, a situation where um, uh, was shortly after I went to the Federal Judicial Center, so I moved from California to Washington, D.C., and I had had a, a major criminal case. It was a uh, homicide case, and uh, there were multiple defendants involved, and, and one of the defendants had uh, resolved his case, and uh, we had agreed on a disposition and, and even agreed on a sentence, and he was going to be receiving a 15-year uh, prison sentence. And there wasn't any... Um, issue to be decided. Everyone suggested that rather than him waiting for me to come back to California for one of my regular visits, that he would be sentenced virtually. I think it was probably like in 2013 or something like that. And uh, so we set it up so that we had, and Zoom didn't even exist then, but we had we had some sort of visual feed. And it was fine and everything went pretty much the way that was agreed and it was by consent so I didn't feel like I was imposing anything on this man but but it did feel very strange most people who've been judges for a long time or maybe even people who haven't been judges for a long time if they've been defense lawyers or they've been prosecutors the idea that you would sentence somebody to prison for a significant period of time uh, and do it you know remotely without any eye-to-eye um, -eye contact in, in the sense that we're used to I mean there's just something about that that's a little unsettling what you describe seems to be a very clinical and impersonal experience, both for the accused and also the judge. Is that something that you and other judges may find difficult to process, do you think? Yes, it was. And, and I think, you know, to your question about what skills you need, uh, I, I think what, what I felt at that time was I needed to be much more attentive than I usually am. And I try to be very attentive when I'm sensing people. This is, to me, it's, it's when I'm teaching, I really emphasize how important this is. Don't just go through the motions. I mean, you really need to be present. Well, I felt like I needed to make an, make an extra effort, you know, just because the fact that we weren't in, in the room together, that, that I was doing it 3,000 miles away by video, it was important to me to convey the solemnity and the seriousness of the, of the proceeding and not just sort of treat it as another thing I was going to, another box I was going to check off in the, in the course of the day. So I think one of the things judges need to figure out how to do in virtual proceedings is how to convey presence. It's not just a routine. It's not just a, a, a thing you, you do because it's part of your job, that somehow you have to figure out how to connect with the person and Eye contacts are very important, I think. Uh, uh, physical attention to the process is important, not being distracted, not looking at other things. I mean, but, but really trying to do everything you can to convey the sense that you are really paying the closest attention you can. And again, I, th I think it's important that judges do that anyway, even in, in regular times. But I think it takes on an added meaning or an added significance when you're doing a virtual proceeding. But I mean, you're trying to model something. I think judges are trying to 
at least I hope judges are trying to channel sort of the, the universal aspiration people have for justice and for the, you know, the sort of the sobriety of the person who's pre- conducting the proceeding. And, you know, it's harder to do that if you're not fully aware of your surroundings. So I think it's kind of one of the challenges of virtual anything is that it, is that it flattens the experience. Do you think operating in a virtual environment takes more of an emotional toll and in turn places extra pressure on judges? Judging is a difficult job under the best of circumstances. Uh, it was a very hard job before the pandemic, and there are all kinds of pressures that judges have. And uh, you know, there, there's there's workload, and there's there's dealing with the the so- social environment in which you're operating, and it's the 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 nature of some of the things you hear, uh, vicarious trauma. You know, if you're, if you're dealing with with very messy criminal cases or very messy family law cases. And so I think the life of a judge is one where you're seeing a lot of things and you're hearing a lot of things that can be uh, emotionally challenging or or upsetting. And there's no uh, part of the training of judges that really gives them the skills to manage that stress. You have all of that. And I think just recognizing that you're experiencing emotion, being aware that you're experiencing emotion and being aware of what the source of the emotion is, and then being able to intentionally choose your response rather than just being mad or, you know, being exhausted or being being frustrated that you give yourself the agency to say, okay, this is how I'm feeling and this is how I'm going to respond to it. And that is a skill that can be taught and can be developed. Uh, and a lot of the way you do that is to develop uh, a more mindful approach to what you're doing. This is another uh, area of focus for us. But the point is that in a virtual setting, I, I think that becomes even more important because uh, of what I said earlier, that, that somehow you have to convey something of the seriousness and the, and the intensity and the nature of the judicial process, and you have to do it in, a, in, a, in an environment, in a, in a platform that doesn't lend itself well to it. And, and so to be really present in a, in a virtual conversation, I think you have to work even harder to, to regulate emotion and to, to, to express your presence and your, and your, and your interest. And, and so and it just, it just, to me, it's like why it's so important that judges have that capability. Um, I've been doing a lot of work at Berkeley, which is one of the reasons I'm there, is I, I really have appreciated the support I've gotten to, to, to do this research and do this academic work, is how you empower judges to be better regulators of their own emotional responses so that they can do their judging job, you know, with, with the fullest possible awareness. Um, that's really the, the goal. And I think mm-hmm. that's particularly important in the, in the context of virtual proceedings because you're not with the person. On that salutary note, and for those insights that you don't often hear about on the work of judges, thank you to Jeremy Fogel. Now we move closer to home, to Sofia, Bulgaria, and talk to Judge Radislava Kasharilska. I began by asking her about the current situation in Bulgaria for judges and remote hearings there. We have a rapidly increasing number of COVID cases and new measures are to be expected any day soon. But I hope it won't result in having a full lockdown and court closures as before. I believe that the society and the government had realized uh, how important it is for the courts to stay open, 
uh, and also any other government uh, authorities. And uh, now they are trying to, to figure it out how to work, but still being more precautious. Um, of course, new safeguards for judicial rights must uh, continue to evolve as the courts adopt new ways of working. And we have entered a digital era that brings uh, not only great opportunities, but also poses ethical questions and legal questions. Uh, these questions have never been tackled before. And at present, many legal professionals are doing research on the topic and every new technology used in court is assessed or should be assessed in view of safeguarding litigants' rights and providing access to justice for everyone. So we are working on the question. You mentioned earlier about the opportunities that technology can bring to modernize the judicial system. First, I wanted to ask you a little bit more about the use of remote judging in Bulgaria and some of the challenges that are currently faced by judges. Yes, I believe remote hearings are very important, especially during the pandemic. Using more e-justice tools will prevent another full closures of the courts, as one we had in Bulgaria from March to May. And I, I believe video conference could be used in all kinds of proceedings, civil, criminal, administrative, by judges' discretion. However, as a criminal judge, I will emphasize on, on some um, special requests, issues for remote judging in criminal trials, which have been largely debated in our court practice these days. Mm -hmm. uh, for me, it's appropriate for a party to participate in criminal uh, process remotely only if the party agrees and this could be used more widely on uh, non-evidentiary hearings. Of course, the judge could decide whether to hear remotely also witness testimonies or expert witness uh, also. Uh, if uh, circumstances require this, though conducting hearings in person guarantees the full protection of defendant's rights, and thus a fair trial. So we should be very careful when using virtual hearings and ensuring that they won't lead to limitations for access to justice. And the biggest challenge, like everything in life, is to find the balance. And right now in Bulgaria, we are just searching for that balance. Uh, at the moment, at the parliament, they are discussing new measures and amendments to our procedural codes that will allow using video conference more widely, but in more cases, actually. But uh, for me, the biggest obstacle is that the uh, parliament wants to limit uh, how video conference is used. They want to uh, suggest uh, that only uh, the parties could uh, take part in the process remotely only if they are uh, in a, another courtroom, in prison or arrest building. So I believe this is not a good idea, especially during pandemic. And in my personal uh, career, 
I have used video conference mostly from uh, people's homes or offices. <laughs> Just yesterday I had a hearing, uh, a criminal trial. Actually, it was the final of the trial. And uh, the defendant uh, lived and worked in uh, Great Britain, London, and was not able to come back to Bulgaria right now. And we have done this also one previous time, then he came back to Bulgaria. So we had like this hybrid hearing. But yesterday he was there via video conference using his phone and he was actually in his car just because he said it's more quiet there. And instead of being at the office, somewhere he works. And uh, he had questions to the witnesses. He even gave his testimony and his final words. There were pleadings. And uh, after that, we, we had our verdict uh, read before him also. So we, we are just being creative and trying to have almost normal proceedings just to be sure we are working, still working and still ensuring access to justice for everyone. Can I ask you a question in relation to the safeguarding of people's rights? It may well be that certain judges have a different understanding or a different view of what might constitute a fair trial. So would you think that it's a good idea to have certain guidelines in place for judges? Yes, I I think it's nice. And actually, I believe it's a bit too late and we should have that four or five months ago because we are working from May. We are full speed. We are trying to catch up with all the hearings that were postponed. So now everyone just figure it out for themselves. But yes, it will be helpful, especially for younger colleagues that are just starting to use it. And uh, I believe every good idea is valuable and uh, we should uh, see how it's done somewhere somewhere else and use best practices in that field. Judge Kasharilska, I wanted to ask you about the work that is ongoing to introduce technological improvements to the court system in Bulgaria. And I know this is something that has caused a certain amount of discomfort to some judges. Can you explain for us what the judges are protesting about? Yeah, actually, the judges had real serious problems with uh, our new case management system, which uh, has been implemented in all courts across Bulgaria one month ago. But after protesting for few days, the Supreme Judicial Council has uh, voted to stop implementation of the system. And they gave us like almost two, three months to work on amendments, suggestions, improvements uh, for the system. And in uh, the end of December, they want it, uh, the, I hope, upgraded one, to be implemented finally in the courts. I believe this is European Union request to do so. Uh, so we have a deadline and we should um, deal with it in this short period of time. Of course, it took like uh, three years, maybe more, to, to do this version of the system, which is really disappointing. But uh, the biggest problems was uh, that were that 
the system is not working properly, using it takes more time than before using our old systems. Uh, to put in short, the system is not user-friendly. It requires too many unnecessary steps uh, to do even a simple task. It's not intuitive. So this creates extreme difficulties for the judges to do their job remotely and does not allow for future development of the functioning e-justice. I, as you know, I took part in our group suggesting amendments and new functionalities for the system. And we have filed a proposal of 260 pages with detailed ideas for improving the new system. I believe most of the technical problems will be solved. They should be. This is the most important thing for anything, actually. Just your users should give ideas and should tell you what they need, and then you will have to give it to them. You mentioned earlier about the opportunities that technology brings to modernize the judicial system. Could you say a little bit more about how you would hope this can be achieved? It's a tough question, really, but in the last few years, we have witnessed an increasing uh, demand for transparency of the courts, for significant reforms regarding easier access to information, economical savings in the judiciary in Bulgaria. But only after the pandemic, our society and the governing bodies of the judiciary came to realize the crucial importance of e-justice, remote hearings, and in general, the need to modernize uh, the judiciary and the courts. So, in fact, I believe that the pandemic has moved the reform forward in just a few months that usually would have taken a few years. And uh, I do hope that after we defeat the virus, we will still work uh, towards having more modern, more efficient, more environmental-friendly courts. This would be uh, possible when legal professionals from all over the world or the country connect and exchange their professional experience and share ideas for the usage of new court technologies that also provide full and fair trial. We should never forget about that. Uh, I believe anything is possible and we just have to work together and be more creative to achieve our common goals. So yes, I am an optimist for the future of the judiciary, but it's not possible without hard work. Well, on that positive note, thank you, Judge Kasharilska, for sharing your observations from the judge's bench. And thanks indeed also to our earlier contributor, Judge Fogel. Well, that brings this episode to a close, but please tune in for more on these topics in our next episode. Till then, for Sealy Talks, this is Frida Greeley saying thanks for joining me. And for more on these topics, you can go to our website at sealyinstitute.org.